chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 20, and verse through verse 26. John 12, 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. They, then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, our God, as we are gathered in worship, as we continue before you, we come now to that which you have appointed, the preaching of your word. Lord, we are frail. We are humanity. Uh, We are in a condition uh, that is not fully formed. Lord, you have redeemed us. Uh, You have purchased us. You have given us new hearts, and yet uh, we are at war with our flesh, as Paul says in Romans 7. And so, Lord, as we, your people, assemble before you, we pray that you would lift Christ high before us, magnify him. Lord, bless, strengthen us, uh, that we might go and continue to fight the good fight of the faith, that we might press on to the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless the preaching and the hearing of the word with the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we heard John declare how our blessed Savior entered Jerusalem to the welcome of the people, often referred to as the triumphant entry. There was a great multitude of worshipers that had gathered for the celebration of Passover. Many, after arriving, heard of the God-glorifying miracle whereby, whereby Jesus... A man known to them as Jesus of Nazareth raised a four-day dead man. Jesus raised this Lazarus in a nearby village of Bethany, not even two miles from the gates of the city. The word ran through the city then on that first day of the week that this same Jesus who had done that miracle was entering the city. And so the people thronged and they shouted and they celebrated, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, other events took place on Sunday and Monday, but the next day that John writes about is Tuesday. So, we've gone in verse 19 from the first day of the week to verse 20. We are now on Tuesday. John records an event that took place late on Tuesday. Now, this is not just the verses that we've read. This will be following on down through the chapter. Uh, This discourse of Jesus that takes place on Tuesday evening. What happens earlier in the day has been recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John does not record it. But it has some bearing. So uh, we want to just consider it briefly. There were renewed challenges to Jesus' authority then on that day. By what authority do you do these things? We saw that early in Jesus' ministry. It's the same thing they did with John the Baptist. Who sent you? By what authority? Why are you come? 
And so again, there's this renewed attack. There, there are the attempts to trick and trap him. We, we referred to one of those from Mark a little bit ago, including the matter of wanting him to denounce the paying of taxes to Caesar. But Jesus also placed a challenge before his enemies on that day, asking, how is it that King David calls his son Lord? You know, he's the father of this son, uh, who's the superior, and the son should call him Lord, and yet David refers to his son as Lord because it's David's greater son. Uh, he puts that question before them. They don't know how to answer it. And finally, Luke records that Jesus stood observing the people entering the temple and dropping their gifts in the money box. And seeing a widow drop in two small copper coins, Jesus declares that she has given her all. She's commended because she gave out her poverty. She gave everything she had. Now, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all written all that the Holy Spirit moved them along to write, the same Holy Spirit moved John to write these verses that we see before us, verse 20 and following. Most, indeed, most of what flows from John's pen in the rest of the chapter and all of through to chapter 17 are unique to John's gospel. Some of you will know that, that it's referred to as the upper room discourse, for they soon will find themselves there, and Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, instructing them, and instituting the Lord's Supper, and so forth. And so, what follows here, as we begin in verse 20, and through the remainder of the chapter, is Jesus' finally, final public teaching. This is the last that he teaches in public. It's not the last that he teaches, as we see. There's this long discourse that he teaches his disciples, but this is his last public teaching ministry. What is it that Jesus spoke about late on that Tuesday of Passion Week? What has been his focus for some time? That his hour was to come, and now he speaks of it. His hour, as we understand it from the Gospels, particularly in John's Gospel, his hour is not just the crucifixion. It's the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. His hour, it's the hour, the occasion in which he will be glorified. It seems so wrong that he says, you know, that it's now has, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And yet he immediately then speaks of his death. And that's what we'll consider today. It is one of the greatest ironies. Perhaps we should understand it is the greatest irony of all. And John's gospel is filled with these ironies. What an irony. Jesus in his humiliation and his suffering and affliction, Jesus by his own lips says he is glorified in that. And certainly, I hope you're hearing echoes of Paul's words in Philippians 2. And then also we'll find that Jesus teaches us, all those who would be his disciples, that to attain life, we must lose it for his sake. Yes, to follow Jesus into heaven is the way of the cross. The way of the cross. We're going to use four main headings. Sinners drawn to the Savior. How the Savior saves sinners how saved sinners are to love, show their love for their Savior, and finally, the promise of the Savior to his people. I know you don't have your outlines this morning, so sinners drawn to the Savior, how the Savior saves sinners, how saved sinners are to love, show their love for the Savior. I'm sorry, I, I have typed that wrong. It's actually how saved sinners are to live for their Savior. How Savior sinners are to live for their Savior, and finally, the promise of the Savior to His people. We begin then with sinners drawn to the Savior. Uh, 
Again, it's late on Tuesday, and the story moves from Jesus, his triumphal entry. There's quite a shift. There's been a marked change in time. Uh, it's the, the day of uh, his triumphal entry, and the next thing we find ourselves on Tuesday evening, and John tells us that certain Greeks. Now, trust me when I tell you that commentators are all over the place on this stuff, um, particularly when you consider unbelieving commentators. Um, but I'm persuaded that what the way that John writes here, these are not Hellenist Jews, that is, Greek-speaking Jews. These are Greeks. They're not of, of the tribes of Jacob. Uh, these are Greeks who have come to worship at the Passover. John says these Greeks were among those, and I'm going to give you a more literal translation, they were among those accustomed to go up in order that they might worship at the feast. He was among those that this was their practice. This is what they were accustomed to do. The King, New King James captures that pretty closely. These are converts to Judaism, uh, often referred to as proselytes. Uh, that's not a word that we use so much today. I'm just we'll leave it at this. They're converts to Judaism. They've left the worship of idols. They've left the worship of pagan gods uh, through, uh, and we're going to talk about this more, through the testimony of God's people and through the majesty of God displayed in his people. They have been drawn and attracted by God's spirit to God's people and to the place where God is worshipped. They have been coming it's their practice. They're accustomed to coming at the time of the feast. They've been won over by the Spirit of God to the religion of Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, God has made provision for such people from outside the nation of Israel. He made a provision that they should be able to draw near. Uh, I want you to turn with me uh, to 1 Kings 8 and verse 41. Some of you will know right off, 1 Kings 8 is the occasion when the temple has been completed. And the bulk of what the chapter is about is Solomon's prayer upon the dedication of the temple. And in verse 41, Solomon before the people, head uplifted, arms uplifted, looking to God, asking his blessing uh, on this place. And he says, moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake. For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards the temple here in heaven. Solomon understands the, the evangelistic enterprise of God, that God is not just caring for Abraham's descendants. God cares for the sons of Adam. God's agenda, God's gospel is to go far and wide, and Israel is to be faithful in obeying God and living before God and in their worship of God. And the nations then would hear of God's great name and his strong hand and outstretched arm, and they would come. And Solomon prays that when they come, that God will hear them in that place, in that dwelling place that he has built. For there, there was a provision of a court for the Gentiles. Remember, Matthew records that Jesus, uh, what Jesus did right after the road, uh, right after the, he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus went and cleansed the temple. It's the second time. He did so at the beginning of his ministry. He did so at the end of his ministry. He cleansed the temple. And in doing so, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has prophesied, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. Who? The nations. 
Isaiah 56, 7, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, God speaking through Isaiah, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's one of the motivations that Jesus had for cleansing the temple because they had made it a corruption. It was a place to be where God's majesty and glory was shown forth that the nations would be drawn, that they would see the greatness of God, that they would be attracted to him. And they had corrupted and so Jesus cast them out and overthrew their enterprise. And isn't that remarkable? This is all through the Old Testament that God would call the Gentiles. God had made a provision for the Gentiles to enter his temple and worship in an area known as the court of the Gentiles. And there, there was a wall that was set up. The Gentiles could proceed this far in the temple, but no further. There was the wall of separation. That's what Paul writes of in Ephesians 2.14. Because of the completed work of Christ, the middle wall of separation was torn down. You remember that? This is what it's talking about. There were Gentiles. They could come, but they could only come so far. But Christ has torn down that middle wall of separation. Furthermore, Christ has rent the veil so that we, by him, because he has gone before us with his blood, we can enter into the Holy of Holies. This was what he came to do. Recall that God made that promise to Abraham. Through your seed, he didn't say Abraham's descendants, the 12 tribes of Jacob, he says, through your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he said, I will give you descendants, spiritual descendants, as numerous as the stars in the heaven. And he's out there on a dark night seeing those hosts, or as numerous as the sand upon the seashore, a multitude so great that no man can count it. And so these certain Greeks came seeking Jesus because God had already been drawing them. Even with the twisting and the perversions of, of the Jewish people and their sinfulness, distorting of the worship of God and, and layering on layers upon layers upon what God had commanded. Yet God was drawing to himself a people. And there were these Greeks. And they wanted to see Jesus. It's very possible that even as Jews who uh, followed after God's commandments, that these Greeks were already converted. They were looking for the promised one. Their hope, uh, even as they came to their sacrifices, was in this one, this one in the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, David's greater son, as they would have learned the scriptures, that they're looking for him. So why are they seeking Jesus? Well, it's not hard to figure out. Consider they've come to the Passover. They've come from someplace in the Roman Empire. They arrive there. And there's been, uh, the nation has been charged for some several years uh, with an anticipation that the Messiah was coming. And so they arrive in the city, uh, the city's filled with people, and everybody's talking about the resurrection of Lazarus. A man four days dead, and this Jesus of Nazareth has raised him. And people are talking about it. They're asking, what, could this be the Messiah? Is this one? And certainly there were those who believed he was the one. And these Greeks arrive, and they hear these things. They're hearing about this one, and they no doubt wonder, could this be the Christ? And they desire to see him. Now, to be sure, we're reading through the lines, but what I'm declaring here is not preaching. This is not highly speculative. Considering the context, it's all right here. Many are curious, but these go further. They want to see Jesus. Now, what's harder to answer is, why did they come to Philip? You notice that? They've come, and they're desiring to see Jesus, and they came to Philip. Well, I think John uh, gives us a little bit of data, whereby we might understand it. 
you know, it might just be as simple as they're pressing through the crowd. The first one of Jesus' disciples they come to is Philip. So they ask him. But I think there's more here for us. Philip came from an area. Notice that John records. He was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Philip, Andrew, and Peter were from that region. And it was an area that was populated with many Greeks, Greek speakers. And so we would understand that Philip and his brother Peter, they were already speaking Greek. And so as these men are in a city filled with those speaking Aramaic and and some who would have spoken Hebrew, although the the lingua franca, the language of the day was Aramaic, these are Greek speakers and they're asking and Philip could understand them. And so he engages and so they tell him we would see Jesus. Remember, uh, well, let me first say, what do we see then? They tell to him we we wish to see Jesus. Philip in turn told Andrew, why doesn't he just go? And then they together, they come. Well, I think that we would be right to understand that there might be some confusion in these two men. Not certain what to do because they would have been present when the Syrophoenician woman uh, wants Jesus to heal their, her daughter. And, and Jesus doesn't just immediately do it. There's uh, some pushback and she says, yes, but even the dogs, which is what the Jews called the Gentiles, get to collect the trum- uh, crumbs from under the table. And so maybe they're not certain. But then also they would have been present, and we have it in John 10, when Jesus preaches uh, and declares he's the good shepherd. And in that context, what does he say? He says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And so these men... Uh, they're trying to sort it all out, trying to make sense. And so Philip's not confident on his own. He goes, seeks Andrew, and then the two of them come together. Well, what do the Greeks want? Well, it's not something that John leaves hidden. They say, we, sir, the respectful sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, to see in the original language doesn't mean just they want to lay eyes on. These are not a bunch of groupies that, you know, they want to get an autograph or something. They want to see their, their teen idol or something. No, these men, they want to talk to him. They have questions. They're not like the Jews. They're coming to, not coming to challenge Jesus. It is most probable that they wanted to hear and assess for himself, is this our long expected Messiah. They've come to town and there's all this uprising and turmoil and and they have questions and what better way to get those questions answered than go right to the source. They want to have an interview with Jesus. So Andrew and Philip bring them to Jesus. Now what is happening here is the fulfillment of God's promise to call to himself through his son a people, his church, the body of Christ from every tribe, every tongue, in every nation. Here is a cracking open of the door, if you will. Some light shining through and spilling out to people sitting in darkness. Here are the first fruits of what the angels told the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks by night. What did they declare? I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born a Savior, who is the Christ, or Messiah as the Jews would have it. God was on the move. What we see right here, God's on the move. The great evangelist who announced in the garden right after Adam and Eve had sinned the good news in in a very uh, nascent form of the the Proto-Evangelion, the first pronouncement of the gospel, he's on the move. He sent his son into the world to save sinners and those far beyond the boundaries of Israel. And here is a little glimpse into what's about to happen. What it will take is the persecution, even the martyrdom of James. 
and then the persecutor, well, Stephen, and then James, and the church will be pushed out and spread abroad, and they'll go proclaiming the gospel even to the ends of the earth. God's work being accomplished. The Gentiles were a part of what God was doing. Well, before we move on, let's consider some applications. Sinner, is God drawing you to himself? Is he drawing you out of the darkness into his glorious light? That light is Jesus. He's the light of the nations. That's what John announced in the opening of this gospel. If you would be free from your burden of sin, free from the guilt and the shame that you have for sin, then come to Jesus. Don't resist the calling of Christ by his word and spirit. Come and be free. Let's consider next, secondly, how the Savior, how the Savior saves sinners. Now, certainly we, we deal with this topic often, but it's here, and it's remarkable. Verse 23, but Jesus answered them. Who's the them? Uh, was it the Greeks? Uh, was it uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Philip and Andrew were their inquiry? No, because his answer doesn't suggest that he's you know, sent them away. I think that them is broad enough to include the Greeks and Philip and Andrew have come. But also the rest of the apostles would have been steering in your hand, and there would have been Jews as well. He answers them. Uh, particularly, he would be answering this specific question, but like so often when Jesus engages with one or two, he is intentional that his message goes out to all who could hear. He's not a respecter of persons, even as we heard earlier. And so, Jesus gets right to the point. Something's brought them. Are you the Messiah? That's their question. And Jesus answers in a most remarkable way. He goes right to what the time is. Now, this, uh, those of you who have been with us through uh, John to this point, we've been hearing about the hour. It's not a one particular 60-minute segment. It's the hour, a period of time when Christ will suffer. And we've seen in John, it was not yet his hour. He slipped away because it was not yet his hour. He didn't do or go to a certain place because it was not yet his hour. And now, what does Jesus say? And this will be news for the disciples. He says, the hour has come. Now it's the hour. What they've been wondering about. You can imagine their ears perking up. Okay, I've been hearing that this hour is not yet, not yet. Now Jesus says, the hour has come. And then what does Jesus say? This first part sounds wonderful, that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour speaks, as I said earlier, of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He makes that so clear. Jesus here uses his title, the Son of Man. It's the one that he most often used to speak of himself, coming from Daniel, who referred to the Son of Man who would come, one of God's appointment, uh, even the one who is like the rock uh, removed from the mountain, not with human hands, who came and topples the nations. Let that be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. He is that Son of Man. But then Jesus moves from saying that the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You might imagine the disciples maybe hold their breath. What's going to happen? We're going to, what, is he gathering armies? Is it going to be a triumphal entry with you know, riding on a steed with armies behind him going to war with the Romans, casting down principalities and powers? Jesus says a parable, most assuredly. It is truly, truly. What I'm about to say is absolutely, certainly true. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Most of you, 
I know most of you well enough to know that most of you have garden. Many of you garden season by season, and I think most of you have gardened at least some point in your life, and you understand that you, you take a seed and you plant it into the ground, and you're not going to deal with that seed again. It's not your intention to deal with that seed again. You're expecting the seed to do something. The seed, um, the way Jesus puts it, dies. It it ceases to exist, but within the seed, uh, by God's appointment, is the germs of life, and uh, through mechanisms that God has so ordered in creation, the seed, um, giving up its life, then brings forth a plant. Jesus often used this imagery of plants, planting a seed and bringing forth a fruit, an increase of a harvest, 30, 60, 100 fold even. And Jesus speaks of that. And if, if it's just the seed, it's alone. And of course, Jesus is speaking of himself. Jesus wants these Greeks who have come, he wants his disciples to understand, and they've heard this before, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to be turned over to, uh, by the religious leaders to the Romans. He's going to be uh, crucified, and they've objected. They're, they're upset. They want a warrior king. And here Jesus says, most assuredly, I'm going to be glorified, and it's going to be through death. Jesus knew all the prophecies about himself. He knew that in order to save others, he must fall into the ground, as it were. Again, Isaiah 53, God speaking through the prophet, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. At that point, when he he shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. Making his soul an offering for sins to give himself up. It is to die even as he was soon to do upon the cross. It was necessary that Jesus die so that he would secure salvation for his seed. To bring salvation to all those whom the Father had given to him. This was the covenant that the Father and the Son had made with one another. The Spirit included that before the foundation of the earth that the Son would die to save all those that the Father gave to him. His soul or life, must be made an offering for sin, for the sin of his people. If Jesus did not die, he would remain alone. Here he is, the second Adam. He's God come in the flesh. He is the only human who is sinless, who is righteous, who is spotless, who has free and open access to the Father. There's no barrier between him and his father. I and the father are one. I do all the will of my father. I only say what I hear my father saying. He has this tremendous union, communion, and fellowship with his father, not only as the son of God, but as the son of man, the God man. He has that. And if he does not die, he alone will have that. It will never come to any others. We'll all perish in our sin. And so it is that by Jesus giving his life, He became a ransom for many. What Jesus is teaching in this little parable is the tremendous doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. His life for ours. His righteousness for our sake. He died that we who were dead could live. And if he didn't die, there is no salvation for the children of Adam. We would all perish in unrighteousness. Look how Jesus speaks of his final humiliation. He's going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's made that known to the apostles. They particularly would know that. It's the fulfillment of the prophecies. It's what Isaiah speaks of earlier in Isaiah 53. Marred and disfigured beyond uh, recognition. Bruised. 
for our iniquities. How does Jesus speak of it? This humiliation, this great humiliation is about to come upon him. Just days away. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Here's the greatest irony of all. In suffering, Jesus' death, and seeming defeat, Jesus wins the greatest victory of all. It's the fulfillment of the promise. He crushes the serpent's head. Satan never saw it coming. This plan of God, this wisdom of God, the justice of God played out through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan has no idea, nor can he even imagine. I would even think that the angels themselves could not imagine that God intended to save these wretches of rebellious, wicked, vile people who have polluted and corrupted God's earth and who turn on each other and are filled with violence and bloodshed, sin and iniquity, that God would save them? It's only known through the prophecies that are to come. And Satan never saw it coming. He never understood that it was God's design to save the children of Adam. He never saw that his own evil designs were part of God's plan to defeat him and bring victory. And and Satan, in using evil men to crucify the Lord of glory, Satan sealed his own defeat. It's as though he lifted Jesus' foot and placed it on his own head that it would be crushed, all the while thinking that he would soon be the victor, that he would soon triumph, and that he could exalt himself above God, for that was the lust of his heart as it was filled with pride. And yet the second Adam, Jesus was fully obedient, even to death on a cross. And in so doing, Jesus is glorified above all. And God has also glorified him, giving him a name, the name of his only begotten son, a name that is above all others. But think about it at the cost of the father. He gave up his only begotten son to save sinners. Why? Because God so loved the world. What a God. What a mighty God. And even as Christ is magnified and glorified, the Father is glorified in the completion of Christ's work by displaying his invisible attributes to men and angels. We see God's love on display. No greater love hath any man than he lay down his life for his friends. Here's the love of God in full evidence. God's justice, where justice and mercy meet and kiss. God satisfying his wrath, paying the penalty in order that then he can save even those sinners to himself. We see God's truth on display. In no way is compromising who he is. We see the omnipotence, that is the almighty power of God, that a life slain and laid down indeed was raised up on the third morning. On the cross when Jesus died, the greatest display of God's love appeared. Would you see the love of God? Look at the cross. See Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul compels the Galatians to do. He says, you saw him. As you heard the gospel, you saw him crucified. The love of God displayed. Before we move on, some questions of application. Are you seeking the right kind of Savior? The Savior that you long to have, is it the right kind of Savior? Is it a Savior who will affirm you as you are and pat you on the back and say you're a fine little boy or girl? It's not who God is. God sees your sin and it's offensive to him. Are you seeking the right kind of Savior? 
Are you seeking the salvation of a Savior who will come in and, and destroy your foes, uh, the bullies in your neighborhood, in your school, uh, the, those who would set against you in the workplace, a Savior who will wipe out all your debts and, and, and fill your bank accounts? You're seeking the wrong kind of a Savior. None of those things are ultimately important. They have their place, but the ultimate thing is your sinfulness. Are you seeking a Savior who can cancel the reign and power of sin within you? One who can pay the penalty for your sin, for the wages of sin is death. Someone who can deliver you from death. Are you seeking that kind of Savior? My friends, Jesus alone saves sinners. And he is the Savior who does those things. And salvation is found in no other name but in the name of Jesus And it's because Jesus humbled himself even to the death on the cross that God has given him a name that is above every name that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And even as Jesus speaks then in verse 24, he continues on. He talking about what he do, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. What Jesus is about to do is effective. There are those who say, well, Jesus is just a great example. That's that's the mindset of liberals. They, They have a cross, a Christ without a cross, people without sin. But indeed we have sin and Christ went to a cross and indeed he truly died. But there is an example in what he does and that's what Jesus is talking about. He who loves his life will lose it. But he who keeps, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is teaching those who are before him the cost of following him. What Jesus has taught about himself he applies to those who would follow him. Let us be clear that Jesus alone dies as a substitute for sin. No other death can bring salvation. He alone is a sacrifice that is acceptable acceptable to God. He alone is a spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Nevertheless, Jesus teaches his disciples, those whom he saves, to follow their master. And so Jesus teaches by an analogy or a principle that there are two laws. One applies to Christ... The other applies to those who he saves, his disciples. First, concerning Christ, if there is to be fruit, then he has to die. That's what we've seen in verse 24. But secondly, concerning his disciples, verse 25 and 26, we too, then, if we belong to Christ, must be willing to die. As a matter of fact, in order to belong to Christ, we must die. This doctrine is taught in the other Gospels as well as in several other places. Listen to Jesus as he teaches this truth. Of the cost of discipleship, dying to self. From Luke fourteen twenty six, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. Now, we would call that hyperbole, but Jesus is saying, I must have first place priority. You can't dote on your children and, and compromise with them. You need to love Christ first and above all, and then care for your children under his dominion. In other words, Jesus says, I must have first place in your heart. Anything else that you put ahead of me is an idol 
even father, mother, sister, brother, and so forth. Jesus must have first place. Jesus teaches that we must bear his name and confession before men. Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, does that not resonate with our day? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. Jesus teaches us that if we bear his name, we must confess him before men. Jesus teaches that we must die to self. We too must humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Mark 8, 35, a little before what I just read. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, the gospel will save it. Same words, same setting, a little bit. <coughs> Mark announces just a little bit more with what Jesus said at that occasion. And then in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the same, the same teaching. If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself. He must die. That's what Paul talked about in Galatians 2.20. This death, it's what he actually writes in Romans 6, that when we are baptized in Christ, our union with Christ by faith, we die. We die to sin. We're set free from sin. We're dead to the law as a means of salvation. We are set free by God in Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. That's a death. That's what Paul's declaring. He says, I've died. And indeed, that should, must be our testimony. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He qualifies that. Yet not I, but Christ now lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's what Jesus is calling us to, this costly discipleship. Death in Christ, if you would be saved, then you die to yourself and to sin and to the world. And you live unto Christ. Jesus also teaches full surrender of all that we have and all that we are to him. Even as Jesus cast himself on the Father as he went to the cross. Don't misunderstand me. This is, this is maybe trouble the way I'm going to put this. As Jesus went to the cross, he walked by faith. As man, the second Adam, he walked by faith that the promises the Father had made to him as the man, this, the God-man, that the Father would fulfill them. Even as the Father told him, I've given you a power to lay down your life and take it up again, he went with that confidence. He lived by faith. And so it is that we must live by faith. But Jesus, to save our salvation, he gave all. And he calls us to give all. Again, Matthew 16, 26. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What do you have that you can give to God that he should save you? It's a simple answer, one word, nothing. We have nothing to offer. Salvation is found in no other but Jesus Christ. And if we would grasp and try to gain and to get the things of this world and then perish for all eternity in hell, we have lost all. If it was even possible, and it's not, for you to gain the entire wealth of the world and all the power of the world and all the glory of the world. Sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. It will not save you. You will perish in hell forever. What does it profit a man? 
Jesus teaches then that we must daily die to self. Jesus teaches we must die to self and crucify the flesh. Even, that is, to put the death, the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That's Romans 8.13. But Jesus says this in Luke 9.23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, what happens on a cross? A death. Jesus says daily. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're to crucify the flesh. We're to deny the fleshly desires and lust of the flesh. This is, ties back to our homily on the seventh commandment. We're not to go with the impulses of the flesh. They do not lead us in the right direction. We must bring our whole body and yield it unto God. Offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. Mortify the flesh. Put it to death and live for the glory of God. So here's the irony of the gospel. You want to live? Die. Jesus, so that we might live. The irony of ironies. The Son of God. The exalted God of glory. He drained on high and all the dominions of the earth and heaven bowed to him, obeyed him, yielded to him, served him. He left that place of glory and came in humiliation. His humanity so veiled the glory and the majesty of his deity that they did not recognize him as God. It was what the the Pharisees, they, they say he's blaspheming when he makes such claims. And yet that's who he is. He was willing to do that. He humbled himself. He died that we might live. He brought victory through his death. The irony. And then Jesus says, if we would follow him, we must hate our life in this world if we would keep it for eternal life. What an irony. It seems so counterintuitive. My dear beloved people, do these marks that we've just looked at sound familiar? Are these something that's in your life that by the grace of God, by the word and the spirit of God, you're seeking to cultivate and nurture, denying self, not being caught up in the world, not running after the things of the world, a desire to live the life that you now have in Christ to the glory of God? Indeed, be encouraged. Does your life bear these costly features of discipleship? Are you a true follower of Christ? Is your life one of death to self and living to Christ? So we all strive with, I say we, myself included. This is what we all live. Pastors, elders, and officers, deacons, they don't just have sudden pass. We too must wage war, even as we would instruct you and declare to you and exhort and encourage you to do. It's something we're all called to do, that we would live for the glory of God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, those familiar words, but I want to read a little bit further as it relates. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. That's the gospel, through faith. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. Paul says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then Paul goes on to talk about what Jesus was just talking about. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh. You are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made by the flesh of the hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here are these Greeks being drawn, brought near. What do they hear? They have a great Savior who's going to lay down his life to save them. And then he calls them to follow him in obedience. And then he gives a promise to all those who are be recipients of this so great a salvation. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Is that not marvelous? This world's not all there is. Jesus is coming again. That's his promise. He says that where I am, there you will be also. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. This is what Jesus said in the uh, Great Commission. He gave the church a task. We as members of the church involved in that task to go and as we're going make disciples, teaching them to observe whatsoever thing Jesus commanded. And then as the church, under the ministration of God's word through the sacraments, baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say at the end? Lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. That is a great and precious promise that has served the church through hard and difficult times of the past. Here is the promise of our Savior. If anyone serves him, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And he goes further. If anyone serves me, him will my Father honor. In my Bible reading, I recently finished, or actually, yeah, recently finished the book of Daniel. Remember young Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, three Hebrew companions? They were carried off captive as young lads, probably junior high age, into a far and different land, into a language they did not know, a culture they did not understand. Yet they humbled themselves. Daniel humbled himself, and he lived for the glory of God. He sought to keep himself pure, and God honored him, and he lifted him up. And men were jealous of him, and even with the threats of death, these men were steadfast. Daniel was exalted to a high place in the land. Him will my father honor. Daniel saw five rulers, powerful rulers, come and go in his lifetime. Think about that. Five rulers came and went. Two nations, Babylon, overthrown by the Medo-Persian Empire, God preserved Daniel through it all. And the new kings of the Medo-Persian, they looked Daniel too. He was a man of God. God honored Daniel because Daniel honored God. And that's what we're called to do, honor our God and how we live and speak and think. We may not be placed in high positions in our day, but in the end, Jesus will take us home to heaven. Certainly, this is what it will do. So let the world clamor. We have but one king to hear and obey. One voice to tune our ear to hear. His name is Jesus. He's spoken in his word. And let Jesus be all the world to you and to I. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do marvel at your Son and Savior. Father, we are struck with the irony of these things that he who was exalted humbled himself, that he who was life died that he might give life. And that we who are dead are made alive by him that we might live then for his glory and no longer for ourselves. Father, we acknowledge we struggle 
with this last part. This life of holiness, uh, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Lord, we struggle with it, but we pray, O oh God, as you abide with us by your word and spirit, that we would continue that struggle, that good fight of faith. And Lord, by your blessing, that we would run the course set before us according to the rules, and that we would all finish well. Lord, bless us as sisters and brothers to spur one another on with exhortment and encouragement that we might all run and finish together. For the glory of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and sing at number...